You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now we are continuing our studies in the Sermon on the Mount and our passage this evening in Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to read verse uh, 1 through verse 18, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through verse 18. You'll find the passage, if you're using the church Bible, is on page 970. I notice one of two of you who are here tonight who uh, are usually elsewhere, and you haven't been for two weeks, and you wonder, how on earth did we get to Matthew 6? Uh, when uh, just a couple of weeks ago we were at the end of Matthew chapter 4, and the answer to that question is we are, we are not going through the Sermon on the Mount uh, section by section, uh, closely analyzing the sections. Uh, we are big picture people in this particular study. If you want to be small picture person, then uh, let me recommend you some excellent books on the Sermon on the Mount, Martin Lloyd-Jones, two volumes. I think you can now get it in a one-volume paperback, a very famous series of studies on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, John Stott, uh, a shorter InterVarsity Press book, both excellent studies, many other studies. But uh, we're trying to focus on uh, how does it work? Um, Why is Jesus saying these things? What's the logic here? Because often, you know, when, when you, you read a passage of Scripture because it is Scripture, and you just can't accept it's there, and, and He said it. But why does one thing follow another? Uh, the Scriptures passed through the minds of the authors. So what was going on in the mind as they moved from section to section? And one of the things uh, I've been trying to say is there are big ideas here that we need to try and get hold of. And there is a big idea in the first half of chapter 6, and of course I will be asking you one by one in a few minutes uh, to tell me what that big idea is. So let's uh, read the passage. Those of you who don't know me, I'm only pulling your leg. Says Jesus, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Some of us are born not knowing what one hand is doing. That is not what Jesus is talking about. He's speaking here about such a detachment from self-interest that uh, whether it's your left hand or your right hand is a matter of total indifference to you. And so, as you give in secret, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
And since I'm not going to comment on that, I don't know if when you were younger you ever went into one of those kind of spooky evangelical houses where the dining room was dark and there was this sign on the wall that said, Thou God seest me. And uh, God was presented as a kind of spooky, you know, hiding behind the tree policeman to get you. You know, when you were a naughty little boy, God will get you. We'll send you to God if you're naughty and he'll deal with you. Uh, No, the, the disposition here is entirely different. The disposition here is more like uh, you are eight years old. This is your this is your first match for the primary school football team, and you you go down the wing and you get a terrific crossover. And what do you do then? As the guy misses the goal, you turn around to see if your dad was there, to see if he was watching you, caring for you, if he was encouraged by you. So that's the point that Jesus is making: that the Father sees what we do in secret, and rewards us. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret." will reward you. Now, we noticed last time that the big word in chapter 5 is the word fulfillment. The end of chapter 4, Jesus inaugurates His kingdom. He demonstrates the power of that kingdom. He teaches the promises of that kingdom. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, in what we call the Beatitudes, he gives us a description of the people who belong to that kingdom, the characteristics of the citizens in the kingdom. And one of the features of those Beatitudes is that every single one of them has a passage or passages in the Old Testament that lies behind it. In other words, Jesus is saying the kind of people the Old Testament Scriptures said 
would be God's people are now here. And in the light of the fact that in his ministry, uh, Jesus was not constantly telling people that they were to keep the law and how intricately to balance one law against another, uh, Jesus goes on to say from 5.17 to 5.48, you need to understand that the reason I don't speak about the law as much as the scribes speak about the law is because I am the fulfillment of the law, and those who are my people who are citizens in my kingdom, the law is fulfilled in them in such a way, as he says in 5 verse 20, that unless your righteousness goes down deeper than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you are no part of my kingdom. And as we saw last time, Jesus is not saying, you need to try even harder than the Pharisees to obey the details of the law. That's not the righteousness he's speaking about. He's not speaking about a righteousness in which we try harder, but a righteousness in which God's grace goes down deeper. And what the law of God was actually aiming at begins to be fulfilled in our lives too. So, his big word in chapter 5 is fulfillment, the time that was promised, the age to come. The kingdom of God has arrived, and so its powers are beginning to be released in the lives of people, transformed, the sick healed, but especially disciples transformed. So, that as Jesus says, you remember, uh, at the end of the Beatitudes, that the light begins to shine, and men see your good works, and they, they relate that lifestyle to the Heavenly Father. They cannot find a natural explanation for the lifestyle you live. It must have a supernatural explanation. And of course, this is particularly true of the way in which Jesus takes the law and says, now, this is how it works out in your life. It goes down deep. It transforms your motivations and your desires. It makes you pure. And that isn't something that we can work up out of our own resources. It needs to come down from heaven, from the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven needs to arrive on earth if we're going to begin to live a heavenly lifestyle here on earth. And so he says uh, in that marvelous way that when you live in this new kingdom way, men and women see your lifestyle, and they detect that this has got something to do with the Father in heaven. Now, the people listening to that would have heard it and then kind of bypassed. But now when he goes on to chapter 6, he's talking very directly about doing righteousness. But now he's moved from how the scribes interpreted the Ten Commandments to how the scribes and Pharisees interpreted the religious life. And he focuses attention. You see, he's talking about the difference 
And right at the end of the sermon, you remember, that was what struck people. This is so different. It's not like the scribes and Pharisees. Those are the words that when they were walking home, those are the words that came out of their mouths. We've never heard anything like this. It was so different from listening to the scribes and Pharisees. And I was going to say, let me show you the difference when it comes to what does it mean to be religious. And these three big sections, the first on giving alms, the second on prayer, and uh, the third that he speaks about here is fasting, were the three hallmarks of the Pharisee's life. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke chapter 18, both going to the temple at the same time. And the Pharisee focuses on how faithful he is, indeed uber-faithful, hyper-faithful in these three areas. He gives to the poor. He tithes everything he possesses. Now, actually, the Old Testament law limited what you needed to tithe. But he is so full of how wonderfully gracious God has been to him that there he is standing in the temple saying, Oh, I thank you. Actually, are you hearing me? I tithe everything I have. So if I've ten chairs, one of the chairs is given away, and so on and so forth. So giving was a big mark of, quotes, being faithfully religious. And then praying. There he is. He's praying. Actually, very cleverly, Luke says, he, he prays thus with himself. Isn't that interesting? He prays thus with himself. And Jesus is contrasting the transformation that comes through the gospel. And then there's this whole business about fasting. He says the Old Testament law required that God's people fasted one day in the year on the Day of Atonement. There was other fasting but it was not mandated fasting in the law. One day in the year. I fast twice a week, every single week. That's 104 fasts in the year, incidentally. That's what they call the Pharisaic diet. And uh, he, he is, this guy is super Pharisee. He is super righteous. And you notice what Jesus says about these hypocrites, as he calls them. Now, you probably know hypocrite is the, is the word for a play actor in the, in the Greco-Roman world. And unlike if you're the phantom of the opera and have to go into makeup for seven hours or whatever it is, if you're playing in a, in a Greek drama, you just go backstage and you lift up the mask and you stick it on your face. And the point is that you are one thing to the audience but you're another thing in yourself. And what Jesus is really speaking about here is essentially who do you see as the audience of your life? And he's talking about these people, and they're, they're play-acting, aren't they? They, they? they go into makeup, or in the case of fasting, they go into make-down, and they put on the appearance that they anticipate will bring them the reward of praise from their audience, and their audience is the bystanders, the, the other people in the church, as it were, the other people in the temple. 
And uh, Jesus is saying now, let me. Don't you see what this is? And this particular passage, it's not, it's not uh, exclusive in Jesus' teaching, but this particular passage is a bit like the Saturday cartoons, you know, in the papers. You get more cartoons on a Saturday, the little comic strips. And he paints these three pictures. And he says, dear friends, you've, you've so been taken in by these Pharisees and hypocrites. Don't you see what's really there? So here he is, and uh, you know that he did a good business deal, and he's, uh, he's got an extra 50 pounds, so what is he going to do? He hires a trumpeter, and he marches into the temple behind the trumpeter, and he whispers the remark, now, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, and there everybody stands and watches, and in goes his 50 pounds. And here again is, is the person who's going to pray to the great God of heaven. Now, the great God of heaven just happens to be omnipresent. There is nothing he doesn't see. But this man makes it just such a little part of his prayer that he will do it at the street corner. You know, there's a bustling thoroughfare, and there he is standing, oh... Ah, oh, you're such a great God, and you've been so gracious to me. I thank you that I'm not like the riffraff that are passing by. And she said, don't you see how ridiculous that is? You know, it looks to me as though what happened in the Sermon on the Mount is the disciples come right beside Jesus, but, but there's the crowd of the riffraff around the disciples. And, you know, it's certainly if they were American riffraff, not that there are American riffraff, of course, <laughs> certainly not in this congregation. But, you know, they would be going home high-fiving each other. See, wasn't that, wasn't that fantastic the way he put… I see the Pharisee in a new light altogether. And there he is, he's, he's fasting. And, uh, you know, he goes, along to, he goes along to Harrods and says, you know, what's your worst make down here? You know, do you have any of that pasty stuff that women use, you know, that I can plaster on my face so I look really horrible, so that when people see me, they, miss it, they say, that man can't have eaten for days. Something wrong with him. Oh, no, that's Joe Pharisee. He's so holy. He's so pious. He's so marvelous. And Jesus is saying, don't you see? Don't you see how utterly empty that is? Don't you see how ridiculous that is? And the scholars tell us, actually, that, that Matthew uses… Uh, I don't know who these scholars are. The scholars tell us that Matthew uses a term here, they, they have their reward. And the, the verb he uses has been found outside of the New Testament in what are essentially receipts, first-century receipts the kind of thing that used to be stamped, you know, on, on your receipt in a shop, and it said, paid in full. And you're saying, they're paid, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you go to them and say, you know, you're such a generous man, I can't believe you would give as much as that, then that's actually what, that's, that's the exchange deal that they were making. That's why they were giving. 
They were giving so they could be praised, and so says Jesus when somebody compliments them on their generosity or sticks their name on something. Jesus says they're paid in full, and the same in prayer, and the same when somebody says, my, you're not looking well. Actually, I'm fine, but you're not looking well. It's just that I've been fasting. Oh, my, what a godly man you must be. When they gain the reputation, says Jesus, the receipt is stamped, paid in full, and that's all they ever get. And there is no reward from the Father in heaven, paid in full. And he's really underlining a principle that we find in other places in the Scriptures as well, that in the spiritual life, you do actually get what you really want. If in your spiritual life what you want is a reputation, there are ways of getting a reputation in whatever circle, large or small, that you move in. You can get what you want. But you remember how the word was about uh, the people as they wandered through the wilderness, and uh, they began to, to say to God, this is what we want, that the Scriptures tell us that uh, He gave them exactly what they wanted, and with it they experienced a wasting disease. So, here is a simple principle. In the spiritual life, you can have exactly what you want, and the real issue is this, from whom do you want what you want in the spiritual life? Now, you're forgetting. I was going to say to you, there is a big word in this passage. I want you to look at the passage and then mentally tell me what this big word is. It could be the word righteousnesses, because that's what this passage is about. How do we practice our faith? It could be the word reward, because Jesus is contrasting the fruit of one false spirituality with true spirituality. It could be the word secret. The Father sees us in secret, and He knows us in secret. It could be the idea of, of openly, that, that no one ever truly serves the Lord without the Lord rewarding them openly without it being obvious that they are basking in the Lord's grace. Now, all of those are big words, but actually the big word in this passage is the word that is repeated over and over again. In the space of these 18 verses, there is one word that is used no less than 10 times, and it is the big word. It's the word, Father. It's the word that makes the difference between being the kind of believer Jesus is describing here and being a Pharisee. And I say that for this reason. There was never a Pharisee in the history of Pharisees who ever called God his heavenly Father. But in the space of 18 verses… Jesus tells the disciples on ten occasions 
your privilege is that you may call him Father, know him as Father, live before him as Father, and be rewarded by him as Father. Indeed, because this is the big idea, I think I should go just a wee bit further and say this. In these 18 verses, the Father is referred to on 10 occasions. If you look through the left-hand side of your Bible, you will not find 18 verses in the whole of the Old Testament in which the Father is mentioned 10 times. You will not find 18 successive chapters in which believers speak about God as their heavenly Father. You will not find 18 successive books in the Old Testament in which individual believers refer to God as their heavenly Father. Indeed, as a matter of fact, you will not really find any individual believer in the whole of the Old Testament referring to God as their heavenly Father in this particular sense. Because under the old covenant, the fatherhood of God was a fatherhood of the creation of the universe or the fatherhood of the bringing to birth of this people Israel, but with the marginal exception of God appointing the king as a picture of his son and saying to him, you are my son, today I have become your father, the Old Testament is totally absent of this idea that the individual believer lives in the presence of a loving heavenly Father. Does that mean that the God of the Old Testament is not a God of love? Far from it. Just read the Old Testament. He's a God of abounding in love and steadfast mercy. And as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. But the believers themselves in the Old Testament do not take that back to God. And actually, there's a very special reason for that. It is because they could not see what from the last verses of this particular gospel all believers may see, that actually God is a three-personed God. There were little hints of it in the Old Testament Scriptures. There was this sense in the Old Testament, for example, in the Exodus, that it was God who was redeeming them. No, it was the angel of the Lord that was leading them out in the Exodus. No, it was the Spirit of the Lord that was leading them out in the Old Testament Exodus, but not until the New Testament Exodus was accomplished in Jesus Christ had any individual ever heard the words. This to me is utterly stunning. No one in all history until the words of Matthew 28, 18 to 20, were pronounced by Jesus, was ever able to know that when you get into the very in-being of God Himself, He is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. It's not just sometimes He appears as Father and sometimes He appears as Son and sometimes He appears as Holy Spirit, but actually wasn't it true in the conception of Jesus, and actually visible at the baptism of Jesus, that there was the Son in the water, there was the Spirit descending like a dove, and there was the voice of the Heavenly Father. 
and that this God who had, in the Old Testament scriptures, made himself known, but in a fragmentary way, in a real way, so you could really know him, but in a preliminary way, that now you knew him as your heavenly Father. Because, of course, at last you realize that the one who came to be the Savior was his Son. So, yes, I understand now. It's only when the Son is sent, only when the Son appears, that it dawns on me, if He is the Son of God, then in the very being of God, for the Son there is a heavenly Father. And as I watch Jesus, especially, of course, in John's gospel, but in all the as I watch Jesus, He, he lives in my flesh and in this communion with this obedience to his heavenly Father, and he does so in the power of the Holy Spirit who comes to aid him, and he loves his Father. He speaks to his Father. He lives the whole of his life before his Father. And it's stunningly new. I mean, you could think about it this way. The way in which the, the life of godliness was uh, structured in the Old Testament was that once a year, for a very short time, one day, carrying a sacrifice, one man, the man of whom we read this evening, who had the names of all God's people inscribed on these uh, shoulder stones, would go into the inner presence of God in the holiest place of all. And yes, of course, in a sense, you were there. Your name was there. But in another sense, all you knew about there was what that man might tell you when he came out of there. And if you wanted to know God, then, then you needed a prophet to speak to you. You needed a priest to make the sacrifice. And now, now all of that that was pointing to the Lord Jesus, now it, it's all become it's all become real and true in Him. And so your knowledge of God isn't real but second-hand anymore. Indeed, your knowledge of God, wait for it, is actually Jesus, His Son, sharing His knowledge of God with you because He has made you a child of God, not because you have, as it were, been deified to share His divine nature, but because you've been adopted into His heavenly Father family, and you have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that as John says, you remember, in the prologue to the gospel, everyone who believed in Jesus, He gave the right to be called the, the child of God who was born not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but born of God. And so, what Jesus is setting up here, He's not fully explicating it here, but what He's setting up here in terms of real spiritual experience is that in the gospel, two things happen. The first is that you are brought out of uh, your old natural family, and you're adopted into the family of God. 
And because you're in the family of God, you have all the privileges and all the the rights and all the securities and all the acceptance of being a child of the Heavenly Father. And more than that, you know, perhaps some of us are adopted and, and maybe don't remember the struggles we maybe had if we were six or seven when we were adopted, uh, how impossible it was to call this man who had taken us into his house father. One thing to be adopted, but it's another thing for those new instincts to be born in our hearts so that what is actually true of us is experienced by us. And this is what lies behind everything that Jesus is saying here. The disciples are not yet learning it. They will learn it, and they will later pass that on to other Christian believers, that when you become a Christian, you're brought into the family of God, A, by adoption, so that all the privileges of calling Him Father become yours, and B, by regeneration, so that the instinct to call Him Father and to love Him as Father and live for Him as Father is a reality in your life. And uh, that's not true by nature. It really isn't true by nature. It's not true by religion. It's only true by supernatural regeneration. And the evidence of that, and, and as, as we all get older, we see this more and more, is that when the crunch comes, the person who is merely religious cries out, Oh God, why? But the person who is a genuine Christian, instinctively, it's not that they are naturally better. It is that there is a new instinct in their hearts, and what they instinctively cry out, as the Apostle Paul says, Oh, Father. Oh, Father. And so, what Jesus is saying here that is focused very narrowly, and in a sense, very contextualized by this world, in which he is living, where real religion means giving alms, praying prayers, exercising discipline and fasting. And he's just said, you know, your righteousness needs to far exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, or, or pal, you are no part of the kingdom of heaven. And you think, how am I going to exceed this? You know, do, I have to, do, do I have to fast three times a week? Do have to tithe not only of everything I possess, but everything I used to possess? Do I have to buy things back and then give them away? Do I have to heap up more? How many hours do I need to pray in order to outrighteousness, the righteousness of a Pharisee? And Jesus is saying, just let me show you how foolish all of that stuff is because it's focused in the wrong direction, its audience is the wrong people, and its fundamental error is it doesn't know God as Heavenly Father. And so, and you see, this is the thing. So, it's always trying to prove yourself to Him, and always trying to prove yourself to someone else. It could be in the church. 
Actually, for those of you who are students, it sometimes happens in Christian unions, doesn't it? You know, you, have to, you feel you've got to prove yourself. Now, that's not where we're called to begin. We're called to begin here, says Jesus, by knowing we are children of a loving Heavenly Father. How do I know He loves me? Well, because life's going well. No, 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 no. That's not how you know He loves you. You know He loves you because He gave His Son for you. If they had said to Jesus, how can I know the Heavenly Father loves me like this? He would have been able to say within the next three years, you will have irrefutable evidence of the depth and intensity of His love for you, in that if He's given His own Son for you, He will withhold nothing. I have three sons. You will forgive me if I say, I would not give any of my sons for any of you, love you as I do. I couldn't make that sacrifice. I couldn't make that sacrifice. And God had only one son. And if you're Christ's, He gave that son for you. That's you know, as one of the early fathers of the church said, we believe it because it's absolutely unbelievable. Not intellectually unbelievable, because all up here, we all believe it up here, don't we? That he died for me. But then we have this little thought that says, actually, I've turned out to be just the kind of person for whom he would die. And it means we've missed the point altogether, isn't it? You know, when we think that the the eternal God who had no need to do this gave His Son for me, then inwardly we're flat on our faces before Him. And we think, if you've done this for me, if you've gone that length for me, there is no point in me pretending to be something other than I am. You know how sometimes people today say, well, uh, God loves me just the way I am. It's not true. He loves you despite the way you are. But when you discover He loves you despite the way you are, then you want to give yourself back to Him and say, I know you love me despite the way I am, but I no longer want to be like this. And you can imagine, uh, you know, there were Pharisees who met Jesus, and, and by and large, they seemed to have turned away from Him. But the Pharisee's in all of us, isn't he? Or the Pharisee. She's in all of us too. And you imagine that the love of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming to you. And through that love, you see the amazing love that the Heavenly Father has had for you. Then one of the things that begins to happen is you know you don't need to pretend. And you know, you know, you get to a certain age where the doctors begin to look young and the policemen look young and even the ministers look young. And when you get to that stage, you're able to say, now, if you're a young person, this is actually, this is one of the most liberating truths of the gospel, to know that I have been accepted and loved by the Heavenly Father. And I know it's despite what I am and I know He's going to change me and make me different. 
but if I live from the heart of knowing he has accepted me in Jesus Christ, then in a sense, uh, it doesn't really matter what other people think, does it? No matter who they are, it doesn't matter if other people seem gigantic in their intimidation of us. We are able to say, Father, you see this. Father, you've accepted me. Father, you love me. And so, it doesn't really hurt so much, actually. My mother used to say to me, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you. She rarely lied to me, but that was one of the occasions. It's true, isn't it? It can hurt very deeply. But when you know the Father loves you, when you know the Father accepts you, when you see the stupidity of trying to live in order to please Him so that He will accept you and discover that in Jesus Christ He has accepted you, and then, of course, you want to please Him. Then you see the difference between the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and the deeper righteousness that Jesus is speaking about. And then when you give and when you pray and when you discipline, actually you want to keep it between yourself and the Lord, don't you? You want to say, Father, is it okay if we have this little secret? And the delight in knowing no one else in the whole world knows what I'm doing for His glory except Him turns out to be the fun way to live the Christian life. So, this is, this is simple, isn't it? This is a simple message. What's the problem? The problem is I'm so complicated, isn't it? I am so wretchedly complicated. And so, again and again, I need to sink myself into this and know that He is my heavenly Father, and then allow that to permeate the whole of the life that I live. And isn't it interesting that Jesus says, when this begins to take place in your life, people notice there's a new atmosphere. They're surprised because they thought Christians were different. Actually, they think Christians are Pharisees, don't they? They all think Christians are Pharisees because if they were a Christian, that's what they would be. That's the way they think with this carnal, ungodly way of thinking about God. And that's why they can't understand the stability and the poise and the beauty and the realization of what it means to be a child living before the Heavenly Father. I've never forgotten... um, out playing with one of our boys, playing football out in the park near where we lived. And uh, I, of course, was in goals because running around isn't really my thing. And the ball was whizzing past and whizzing past. And we were having a great time. And I saw this uh, boy with his father. And you know how sometimes you just tell by the distance, you know, either this is a phase or there's something really bad going on here. And as this dad dragged his son out of the park 
the wee boy kept looking back and kept looking back, and all over his face <laughs> was written the words. Of course, he was totally ignorant in thinking this. I wish that were my dad there playing with me. And that's our world, isn't it? We're a world of fatherless bairns. And when they see somebody who lives in the presence of the Father, then, says Jesus, the light shines. And they're drawn into the family. And that's what we want. And that's what Jesus wanted. And very sadly, it's something the Pharisee never, ever wants. But then, he gets what he wants. And so do you. So do you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for the way in which you sent him to be our Savior. And to be our Savior in this sense, to introduce us to you, to say to us, come and meet my Father. Come home to my Father. Come into my family and find all the grace and power and life transformation for which you deeply long. We praise you for the gift and privilege that you've given to us here in this church of being, being people who have a sense that we are family because we are children and brothers and sisters. And in Jesus Christ, we have the one gracious Heavenly Father. Whatever our needs are tonight, Lord, and maybe throughout this week, show yourself to us as a Father that we may know that you will supply everything we need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.